Hey folks, this is Kevin. One of our Patreon patrons, Jason Ventresca, recently sent us this note with their donation during our struggle to keep Risk running. Jason wrote, I cannot thank the team enough for all the wonderful content I've enjoyed over the past year since discovering the show. It has been deeply moving and insightful in so many ways, and also so entertaining, especially on long road trips. Thank you for taking us on the road with you, Jason, and to all of our traveling risk listeners. I once had someone tell me he did a sort of a scientific mission of flying over Antarctica for weeks on end, and he listened to risk the entire time to keep him company. I love to know that we're keeping folks company on their journeys. And thank you to everyone who's been giving back and helping us keep the journey of risk going. Remember, we're at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Now, on this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear T. say. So my OCD does not take kindly to this realization. I've just realized that I'm a six-year-old sexually active lesbian. <laughs> That and more. But first, I have to mention Nikki Smith. Nikki is a risk storyteller. You can find her story, Reassurance, on our renewal episode from March of 2019, who has just given risk a very generous donation to help keep us afloat. And Nikki is also a death doula. A lot of people have never even heard of a death doula, but in short, a death doula provides care and support to those at the end of their lives, just as a birth doula does at the beginning of life. And Nikki actually has a phenomenal podcast called Good Grief with Nikki the Death Doula, where she demystifies and destigmatizes grief with humor and compassion. You can find it at NikkiTheDeathDoula.com or anywhere you find podcasts. Thank you so much, Nikki. And folks, we're going to be hearing more from Nikki and from more death doulas on risk in the not too distant future. We've got a new series cooking that'll be delving into the world of death and grief. We're always coming up with something new, like this episode you're about to hear. We'll be right back. Folks, if you like good old fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York, some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today 
on iOS and Android. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Yee Yee Girl, Jillian Hills behind me now. A lot of gay men were obsessed about 10 years ago with how this song showed up in the show Mad Men. And that cute little cover of the Risk theme song there was a mashup of covers sent in to us by both nervous Neil Smith and Snowboyed Vigil. Now, we're calling this week's episode Ingenues, featuring two stories from women reflecting on when they were innocent babes, just about to learn a thing or two about adult subject matters. <laughs> and we just figured that the universal theme song for Ingenues in such situations must be Zooby Zooby Zoo. In a little bit, Wait, did I? Okay. <laughs> I thought I hadn't pressed record. <laughs> In a, I'm a bit of an ingenue at all this myself. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Skip Bacon. Another story coming to us from Capital Storytelling. A wonderful show and school out in Sacramento. But before that, she's been on HBO and performed at the legendary Comedy Cellar here in New York. This is T. Bernasay at the Risk Live show in New York with a story we call S-E-K-S. That's sex. I always thought that I was the weirdest person I knew growing up. Like there was something fundamentally off about me. But then I left my bubble to go to college and I met and made a friend named Bailey. And Bailey, she is the most mentally ill person I've ever met in my life. So one day we took a bunch of painkillers as the mentally ill sometimes like to do. And I decide that I have a strong and sudden urge to ask her something, something very particular. I'm like, hey Bailey, when you were a kid, was there like this voice in your head that like told you to do repetitive shit or somebody would die or like, you know, you, you had this? Yeah, yeah, she, oh, she's like, oh yeah. <laughs> so you're like Bailey and I, you're mentally ill. Um, so basically I asked her, you know, do you have to do with this shit or something bad will happen? And she, her jaw dropped, like this is exactly her experience. And for the first time I realized that I like wasn't the biggest freak show in the world. And the next day I did some research um, and by that I mean I Googled bad child thoughts. 
And turns out that I had a really bad case of childhood OCD, like real bad, because as a kid, my entire childhood, I thought I had to do everything in even numbers or my mom would die. Yeah, I really believed this. Um, so here, I'll try to explain it for those that don't have OCD. Having OCD kind of feels like having an evil twin living inside your brain, because it sounds exactly like you, but nothing you're asking yourself to do makes any sense. But holy shit, do you know how to manipulate yourself just right into getting to do it. So I'm struggling with OCD, and while I'm struggling with OCD, I start going to Catholic after school. And the thing about Catholicism is that it's never been fruitful for the mentally ill. It really hasn't. It's like eating ass to make your breath smell better, you know? It's not gonna fucking work. And at church, I make an acquaintance. Let's call her Natalie because that's her name, all right? It's her real name. And she comes over for a play date one day and we're hanging out with my obese bulldog Ethel, having a chill time. And she's like, hey, Teddy, let's play this game that my parents play on Sundays. It's like wrestling, but it's spelled S-E-K-S, -S, sex. Yeah, so we're six years old. Um, so let's unpack that. Natalie has a very elderly dad who wears a captain's hat all the time. And her mom is like a fake blonde with huge tits and wears juicy sweat track pants, you know, whatever. So if it wasn't obvious before, it is now. They're fucking in and around the home. You know, doggy, cowboy, surfboard, you name it. Natalie has seen it, you know? But I haven't seen anything like this because my parents don't have sex. They probably never have. And one, because my dad's in prison for fraud, you know, but maybe he's boofing in the slammer, so I don't know, you know, but the point is I wasn't seeing it. And as for my mom, a fake blonde luxury real estate agent, um, she had already replaced him with Kendall Jackson Chardonnay, you know, you know the type. Um, so there's no sex in my house. And I'm naive and I'm dumb and I'm a kid, so I tell Natalie, yes, let's play this game, um, but we have to do it twice on account of the OCD, you know. So we're playing, we're playing the game, we're wrestling, we're just wrestling, but come to think of it, Natalie is making some weird noises um, that she must have picked up from her mom, I now realize. Or maybe her dad, you know, I don't judge, that either way. And I don't think anything of it because I'm a naive, clueless kid. I don't know what sex really is. All I know is that as of this play date, I have done it twice, right? So I basically forget about it until a week later, I'm at Catholic after-school classes called CCD. Nobody knows what it stands for. And we're learning a lesson from a particular person that day. It's a special lesson. Her name is Sister Cruz. Um, in English, it's Sister Cruz. <laughs> but in Spanish, it's Sister Cruz. Um, and the thing about her is that she'll really put the fear of God in you. Like, she has a, a mole on her arm that is like the shape and almost size of Cuba. Um, <laughs> And I'm not some sort of mole racist, but like there's so much hair growing out of that thing, a fucking prairie. So like, I fucking hated it. And she pointed that mole arm at us and this is what she said. Okay, listen. Sex is a sacred act of marriage under God. If you have sex before marriage, Jesus Christ will forsake you to hell. Okay? And the only thing more worse than that, a gay sex between two manks. <laughs> And the only thing, even more worser than that, if you can even believe it, a lep being sex between two women's putas. 
So the whole class is basically an episode of Scared Straight at this point. Um, but like literally scared heterosexual. And I'm sitting there in my jumper, schwitzing, because not only have I had sex before marriage, right? I've done it lesbian style. And I've done it twice. So my OCD does not take kindly to this realization. I've just realized that I'm a six-year-old sexually active lesbian. And now my OCD is not only trying to save my mom, but also reverse my now double homosexuality. And it's never been done before. It's a tall task. So my OCD starts to overcompensate. The numbers are getting higher. It's telling me like, you gotta run up the stairs 68 times or your mom's gonna die and you'll be fucking lesbian. So I'm like, okay, I'll do this. If it's gonna make me less gay. So then I'm running up and down the stairs. I feel it working, so I'm keep doing it. I, I open and close the door like 28 times every time I encounter a fucking door. And I get the mail 16 times even though it's only there the first fucking time. So this is when I realized I was going insane. And it's when I should probably tell a trusted adult, right? Wrong, listen, um, I love my mom, but Hispanic wine moms, like really ain't it for your, like, your mental health and or sexuality based concerns. <laughs> so I kept it in and um, it didn't really matter that I kept it in because I was gonna have a breaking point. But before I say that, there was another reason why I didn't want to tell her. And it's because not long before this, I fell off a chair in my room and broke my arm and I ran over to her room to tell her, dad's in prison, so just forget about him. And I ran over there to tell my mom, and she's like, I don't believe you, she didn't believe me at all. I went to school for a week with a dangler. A dangler, broken arm, just a child, I know, right? And so moving forward, like, sue me if I'm not confident to like bring forward my mental health, like abstract issues to her, you know, I lacked the confidence completely after that. And it didn't matter, I was gonna break anyways. My breaking point was the Disney movie of the moment, um, the Lizzie McGuire movie. Yeah, some of you know it. And if you're not familiar with this film, um, it's a great film, it is a film. And uh, all you need to know is that it's kinda like Parent Trap, but even sexier, if you can imagine. Um, two Hillary Duffs was too, too many for me. Felt a foreign tingle in my pants, and um, I, I knew I'd crossed a line. I was out of control as a six-year-old lesbian at this point. <laughs> and I knew that I needed to tell my mom everything, so I spilled. I'm like telling her how I'm a sexually active lesbian, and also how I have this like weird thing for even numbers that I'll never fucking understand. But it was too late. The sun had already set. Mom was three glasses of Kendall Jackson deep. So um, instead of therapy, she took me to a shoe store her friend Susie worked at called Capretto. And they just had me try in high heels and to make me feel better, they were like, oh my God, look at you and all these pretty shoes. There's no way you're gay. <laughs> yeah, so I think it goes without saying that I never received professional help, right? You can see that. Um, but it's gonna sound like I'm lying. I've grown out of most of it. Like I am straight, or at least I've been in a relationship with a man for seven years. It's gotta be one or the other, right? And you know, every time I see a scrotum though, I'm like, why the fuck did I choose this? But I'm not crazy about the idea of a vagina either, you know? But that's how it started with dicks too. So it's like, who am I to know what sexuality I am? I think I'm straight, but I'm just kind of butch and that's fine. And as for the OCD, most of it's gone. Um, the only thing that's left is an over the top obsession with Japanese stationery. And um, also when I wrap Christmas presents, I feel like I'm snorting lines of cocaine. <laughs> Yeah, um, but those are both positives to me. Um, and 
Did I report my driver's license as stolen so I could have two driver's licenses? Absolutely, that's my right as an American, all right? <laughs> so maybe I am the weirdest person I know, but it's fucking Natalie's fault. <laughs> that's my story, thank you guys. I was born and raised in a town called Monrovia, Indiana. Um, it's a very small town. It's conservative, white, Christian farming community where rural living meant that my closest neighbors were about two miles away. Uh, there were no police at all, no police stations, no fire stations, no road names, not even a 911 system. Uh, it's a town of about 800 people. Interestingly enough, it was a town of 800 people when I grew up there, and to this day remains a town of 800 people. There's actually a movie documenting the astonishing lack of population growth in Monrovia, Indiana. You can check it out, it's on PBS. My mom is in it twice because aforementioned there are only 800 people in this town. But my parents are not from Indiana. My dad actually grew up in upstate New York, and my mom grew up in Southern California. So when they moved to Monrovia, Indiana, they did a lot of things to try and help us fit in. They took us to a lot of events that I know for a fact made no sense to them. Things like tractor pulls, demolition derbies, Alaskan racing pig races. There was even this thing where the whole community would get together to dig holes throughout the town and bury pigs in the holes and then wait for days and then come back and eat those pigs. Like, that was a thing that they did. And they weren't the most religious people on the planet, but they did decide to take us to the local Catholic church. We went to Catholic schools. We helped every year with the annual Apple Festival. And I met my very best friend in the whole wide world, Lori Hayes, at St. Thomas More. So I'm very grateful for that. So my little brother and I had a really well-rounded upbringing. But it wasn't until my little brother and I were faced with the most serious emergency that we had ever encountered in our young lives, that we realized how small and isolated our little town was. When I was 11 and Jack was nine, we were at home by ourselves and it was at twilight hours in between like when you get off of school and then when your parents get home from school where it feels like maybe an eight hour day, but realistically it's probably like at best 50 minutes. And uh, we had this, this little routine that we did. We watched two episodes of the Aladdin television show on channel four. We ate our snacks and then we started our homework all before mom and dad got home from work. And so this was just your regular everyday occurrence for us that we had come home from school, 
The sun had begun to set, so there was this really nice breeze that came in through the porch windows. And if you had the front porch open and the screen door open, it was a really beautiful time of day. And Jack and I had just settled in for our routine. So we had Aladdin on Channel 4 and our Lunchables, which is how we started everything. But that's when it happened. That's when um, the batteries for the remote control for the television died. (laughs) This had happened before, so I didn't panic, okay? I knew what to do. But the thing was with batteries, I don't know, maybe your house was like this, but batteries were a very coveted item in our household because Jack and I were constantly taking them out of very useful household items and putting them in our Jurassic Park toys that we thought were very crucial for our existence. So my mom did this thing where she would buy batteries and in front of our faces, she would take the batteries out of the packages and then put them into small baggies. And then she would make us look away and then she would hide them. (laughs) So we had no idea where these batteries were and that's how it was supposed to be. So we could have things like remote controls for the television and probably, I don't know, fire alarms. But, so this had happened before. So I began the very standard process of scouring the entire house for these hidden batteries. So I was not panicking, I was being cool. So I started the search in my mom's room, which is where all the searches started. Uh, I went for the shoe closet and checked all the shoes. I had never found any there, like I don't know why I started there, but I went straight for every single shoe we owned and didn't find any. And then I made it over to my mom's nightstand. It's fine, I didn't find anything in there either. That's not where they were. Everything was cool. This is not one of those stories. I knew that was gonna be the sound though. Uh, so no, there was nothing there that I, my current consciousness can register. Uh, and then I made it over to her dresser. And on top of her dresser, she had one of those little tiny dresser drawers. The ones where you put like small things or really important things or things you don't want to get tangled. And there were a lot of like unmarked containers in there. And I had found batteries in that drawer before. So I knew my odds were pretty good. So I went for this drawer and I saw the top of a baggie. And I was like, yes, car batteries. Life can continue. Mind you, the television was on. There was no problem. But anyway, so I find this baggie and I pull the baggie out, but it was not batteries. It was marijuana. (laughs) I had found my mom's stash of marijuana. So I screamed for my little brother to come to the scene of the incident. It's probably really important at this point to tell you that in my history of storytelling, my friends always tell me, hey, you know, when you tell stories about Jack, you could replace the word Jack with the words small baby pig and the story would remain totally intact and sensical. Like he, he was not offering anything to this emergency situation I was dealing with. He was just there for comfort, just so you get a visual of what Jack was doing in this exact scenario. Jack arrived and I told him I was completely prepared to handle this situation because I was a graduate of the D.A.R.E. program. Okay? Drug abuse resistance education class of 2002. And that class was taught by Officer O'Brien, who was a police officer from the big old town of Plainfield, Indiana, So he knew drugs, obviously, but so did I. And I knew what drugs looked like, I knew what they smelled like, and I knew their lethal effects on the human body. So I explained to Jack what was happening. I said, Jack, we got marijuana on our hands here. It's illegal, but I've been trained. I know exactly what to do in this precise situation. We have to call the police. (laughs) 
And this is when Jack offered much more insightful advice than, than his little piglet instincts usually did. Because he reminded me of a fact that my panicked mind had long since forgotten that due to the lack of road names and residents in my town, there were no police. There was no 911 system. There was not a fire. There was no one to call. And that's when I was like, that's okay. I know what to do. The only other authority, the only other person we can trust to help us manage a crisis like this is the church we have to call Father Ed right now. We have to contact St. Thomas More Catholic Church immediately. Jack was totally on board. We went into the kitchen. There's that countertop where you keep all your bills and other really important information. And we got the bulletin, the Sunday bulletin. And we got the phone number. And I went into the kitchen, because that's where we used to keep phones. And I went into the kitchen. I got the phone. And I stretched the cord through the living room, through the kitchen, into my mom's, my mom's room, which is now the scene of the crime. And I stood over the bag of marijuana, and I called the church. Found the number and I called the church. And the phone rang, and Darlene, the church secretary, answered. I identified myself immediately. Darlene, this is Skip Bacon, Janice Bacon's daughter. My family is in a time of crisis. I need to speak to a priest immediately. <laughs> Darlene was obviously very concerned and pled with, she was like pleading with me, please Skip, tell me what's going on. Please just tell me what's going on. I was like, Darlene, I need a priest. I don't know what else to tell you. Give me a priest right now. But she really was concerned, really wanted me to share this trauma with her. And I assumed being a church secretary, she had taken the same vow as a priest had, and I could trust her as such. Uh, so I divulged the entire scene to her. She came back and said, just, just hold on. Just don't hang up. Just hold on. She put me on hold. And she was gone for what seemed like an eternity which is the point at which I assumed she had escalated the problem past our parish priest and was now contacting the bishop. So I waited however patiently I needed to wait for the bishop to call me back or for Darlene to answer. So she, she finally came back and she said, okay, honey, hang up the phone. Someone's going to call you back immediately. So I hung up the phone. I held it next to my chest. I stood over this bag of marijuana and thinking to myself, I was terrified. I was terrified. And just as I realized that the sun was now beginning to set, the phone rang. And I tried to muster up as much adult courage as my 11-year-old self could handle. I wanted to make myself sound very mature, like I could handle this situation because I was pretty sure it was the bishop on the other end. Uh, I wanted to sound mature for him, but let him know I was in a real time of crisis and I needed his help. So phone rang again, and I answered. And it was my mother, and she was super pissed. <laughs> I was immediately terrified, and she just kept screaming at me, you called the priest? You little narc, you called the priest? What kind of snitch calls a priest? She just kept screaming. She said, I will be home in 30 minutes. That real deep, mom scream, I'm going to be home in 30 minutes. You stay right where you are. I hung up the phone. I informed my brother Jack that I was in a great deal of trouble. I let him know that I would leave any of his contributions to the emergency management efforts out of my future conversations with mom to keep him safe. He was 
very grateful. And I spent the remaining 30 minutes between when my mom left her office and when she got home contemplating exactly what it was that had just happened. Um, because apparently our time spent trying to fit in with a local church had provided more to my mother than like Christian sisterhood. And it had actually been more like a way for her to foster her SoCal stoner hippie tendencies in Southern Indiana. And the women's ministry at St. Thomas More had become more of like a take down the male patriarchy kind of group. And they had also been buying and selling weed <laughs> to each other. And uh, Darlene was the church secretary. Uh, Darlene was, up until that point, the woman my mother had been purchasing all of her weed from. <laughs> And so I think it was as I was laying in bed that night, just really going over the scolding I had received for being both a narc and a snitch, both terms that were relatively new to me as an 11-year-old. So I was really still struggling with the true understanding there. But I also really started to contemplate and get a new understanding for the complexity and the depth and the breadth of all that the Catholic Church really had to offer. <laughs> Which now I kind of see as like a real pivotal like moment in my life uh, because I actually then continued to think a little bit more about the Catholic Church and I, to this day, work as a professional in the Catholic Church. Um, not in narcotics distribution. <laughs> I actually work as a theologian in the Catholic Church, so it worked out okay for me. My mom, she still lives in Monrovia, Indiana, and still smokes that stinky weed. But I'm not telling, uh-uh, no way. <laughs> Thank you. La, 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 pot, pot, give us some pot. Get what you are, you can be what you're not High, high, I wanna get high Never give it up if you give it a try La, 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 la This is Risk this is Barbara Streisand's grade school classmate, Neil Diamond And here's some trivia Wanna know what Neil Diamond's real name is? It's Neil Diamond I think I've done that on the show before. Anyway, he once said that this amazing anti-pot song that he released in 1968, of all years, almost cost him his career because everyone laughed at it. <laughs> Appropriately so. But later, in 1976, when he was busted for weed possession, he said he'd been wrong seven years earlier to have made this song because he'd since decided the real villain is heroin. And, you know, it's, he's not wrong. Speaking of that, a Risk listener told me it's a shame that we haven't had more folks on who can share about being in recovery from a heroin addiction. And I agreed. So if you're out there, you know we're at risk-show.com slash submissions. Neil Diamond, a.k.a. Neil Diamond would probably want you to pitch us, I'm pretty sure. And that followed a story from another memorably named entertainer, Skip Bacon. 
Skip workshopped and recorded that story for the Capital Storytelling Show in 2019. That's where that recording came from. So thanks to Lisa Cantrell, who runs Capital Storytelling, for sending that recording of Skip our way. You can find Skip on Instagram at skip.bacon. Now, folks, you might have heard me talking on previous episodes about this well-being workshop that I'm creating called Practice, where I'll be leading Zoom sessions with participants, where we explore and experiment with different guided meditations, free-form meditations, breathing exercises, journaling exercises, step-by-step methods you can use when you're especially stressed or dealing with anxiety or sadness and more. You'll be doing paired sharing and sharing with the whole group. We'll have guest speakers come to the various sessions, therapists and life coaches speaking about different practices you can try. You'll have a partner to check in with during the course of the week outside of class. And I'll be doing all of these exercises with everyone else. I'm a fellow traveler working on my own sense of self-love and well-being. So if you were afraid it was too late to sign up, it's not because my sketch comedy group, The State, is possibly doing some, well, we are doing some tour dates this fall. I've pushed the workshop off to the latter half of October for now. So stay tuned. And if you're still interested, go ahead and email me at kevin at risk-show.com. We'll be right back. We're back. La, 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 pot, pot, give me some pot. Forget what you are, you can be what you're not. Do, do, take a family cruise. You with your grass, mom and dad with their booze. La, 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 la. Now, I'll tell you who was probably not smoking the kind bud when they decided to support Risk on Patreon at the $25 or more level, Ingenues, Kelly Vanda, Glenn Watts, Christina Drollet, and Sam Tim. I mean, maybe they were doing any number of edibles at the time, but either way, it was a very clear-headed decision. You're not only fueling the fire going into the bong that is Risk, You're getting access to countless hours of bonus material. And the latest is a story by that star of stage and screen, the one and only Eric Andre. She's rolling the condom on. I'm like, a condom up for a blowjob? This isn't going to feel good at all. And it was the best. It was the best blowjob. And then I'm thinking about it. She's a professional dick sucker. So, of course, she's going to be, and she's doing the porn thing where she's, like, slapping my penis on her tongue, and it doesn't even feel good, but it's cool, and I'm getting all into it. That whole story is on our Patreon. So head to patreon.com slash risk right now, because we really need your help during this scariest year we've been through in our 14 years financially. We're really relying on our listeners to come through and help keep risk running this year. Thanks so much, everyone. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk. La la la, pot, pot, give me some pot. 
Forget what you are, you can be what you're not. Hip, hip, you wanna be hip. You know it all if you don't take a trip. Pot, pot, give me some hot. Forget what you are, you can be what you're not. Just realized that I'm a six-year-old sexually active lesbian. Two Hillary Duffs was too too many for me. Felt a foreign tingle in my pants, and I, I knew I'd crossed a line. I was out of control as a six-year-old lesbian at this point. Hey, Daddy, let's play this game that my parents play on Sundays. It's like wrestling, but it's spelled S-E-K-S. Yes, let's play this game, but we have to do it twice. Yes, let's play this game, but we have to do it twice.